Hello, Finding Humanity listeners. We have some exciting news to share. Our podcast has just been nominated for the 2022 Webby Awards. The show that you've been supporting since we launched in 2020 has been singled out as one of the five best podcasts in the world for public service and activism. But we need your help. The Webby People's Voice Award winners are chosen by listeners like you. Take a minute to vote for Finding Humanity at webbyawards.com. The link is in our show notes and show description. Voting closes on April 21st. Thank you so much for your support. I was in science class, and my lab partner, who was my best friend, he pulled out his phone and he showed me a Facebook group where there were countless boys trading pictures of high school girls like they were trading cards. And so they would send the pictures back and forth and he showed me mine. And I instantly recognized them. There were four pictures of me. And I knew in that moment that my life was over because I was instantly exposed. That's Leah Juliet, the founder and executive director of the March Against Revenge Porn. When Leah was 15 years old, they were coerced into sending nude pictures of themselves to a boy at their school. When the boy found out Leah was gay, he posted the pictures on the internet. Shame made it impossible for me to seek help when I was being victimized by revenge porn. Shame told me that I shouldn't have sent the photos in the first place. Shame told me that I shouldn't have revealed my body to a boy. Shame told me that I was wrong. And because of that, I didn't believe that I deserved help, plain and simple. I believed that I poured the gasoline and he lit the match, but I was just as at fault for pouring the gasoline than I was for starting the fire. I victim-blamed myself. I gaslit myself. I made myself believe that I was the one who started the chain of events that led to my own destruction. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action and together to help create a better world. Leah Juliet is originally from Wilcott, a town in Connecticut. It is the most ideologically conservative town in what is known to be a very blue liberal state. And as a young queer person dealing with religious emotional, sexual trauma. It was incredibly hard to grow up in a place where I didn't see myself visibly or legibly represented. I had divorced parents from the age of seven, and that deeply impacted me because I was very close to my dad and he ended up moving away. And it was very hard for me to grow up feeling a sense of abandonment, even though I knew that it wasn't his choice to leave. 
And I also dealt with a lot of undiagnosed mental illness from a very young age. Mental illness runs in my family. So I I experienced a lot. I was a child who felt very, very deeply, but didn't tell anyone. So I will go back sometimes and find journals that I wrote in middle school where I was writing suicide notes. So I had a very hard upbringing, I guess you could say. Part of the reason why Leah felt depressed throughout middle school is because they were judged by their peers. I started being slut-shamed because of what I wore and because I dated boys. Um, I remember having my first kiss on a field trip in eighth grade with a boy who I really, really liked and cared about. And the boy ended up telling his friends that we had had sex on the field trip. And the rumor spread. And as an eighth grader, being confronted with a rumor that you had had sex on a field trip at school, everyone turned you into a slut and a teenage pariah. And not only that, but the school administrators heard the rumor and found out. And I ended up getting detention. My parents found out. So this moment that was supposed to be my very first kiss, I was turned into a town-wide slut and I was punished and my parents found out and it that was the root of the deep shame. So I went into high school for the first time existing with these rumors around me that I was a slut. I was anorexic. I didn't eat. I, you know, had deep undiagnosed mental illness. So even though I was, you know, not experiencing the worst that the world would offer me yet, at 13, I was still going through hell because of bullying and trauma. A boy from Leah's school had heard of the false rumors. He decided to write to Leah on Facebook. We developed a rapport where we would flirt with one another, but it never went anything beyond that. Nothing physical between us ever happened, mainly because I was only interested in talking to him. I wasn't actually interested in any physical act because as much as everyone called me a slut, I had never done anything sexual at that time physically. And in spite of that, I was obsessed with attention and affection from anyone who would offer it to me, whether that be girls on the internet because I was in the closet as being gay or men and boys in my high school or in middle school. I was obsessed with folks showing interest in me to give me validation because I didn't love myself. So this boy started messaging me and I said, you know, this is attention. I want to keep this attention. The boy started requesting nude pictures of Leah. At first, Leah said no, but the boy spent over a year trying to persuade them. Leah was 15 years old when they eventually caved in and sent him the nude pictures. Around this time, Leah was also coming to terms with their sexuality and starting to share publicly that they were gay. When he heard that I was gay, And when I started to show attention to other people that were not him, he got angry. He told my friend that he was going to ruin my life. And when I heard that he was going to ruin my life, I knew exactly what he was talking about because I knew that he had those pictures of me in his ownership. What I didn't know was exactly how bad it would get because I had no idea that there was a vast network of child sexual abuse imagery that existed on the internet that I would soon become a part of. I had no idea that what I have now known so strongly to be such a vile form of digital sexual violence even existed. 
what Leah is referring to is commonly known as revenge porn. Revenge porn is sharing of private sexually explicit images, either photo or video, of another person without their consent, often for the purpose of harassment or embarrassment. However, some experts believe that the term revenge porn doesn't accurately encompass the scope of this issue. Revenge means that someone's trying to aggress, right, someone else out of a form of revenge. That is a really small portion of what we're talking about. That's Kristen Zaleski, clinical director of the Mental Health Collective, a mental health treatment center in Newport Beach. There are many ways that image-based sexual exploitation can happen, and it's not just about revenge or dating. If they are an adult and this abuse happens online, they can tag their congressional district that they're representing. They can tag the employer with whom they work for. So it can have a wide range of effects from a simple photograph that you might have intended to take for one other person as part of trust building and normal sexual exploration or play. In other forms, we have people who are being videoed or photographed without their knowledge. There is a well-known Marines United Facebook page hit congressional hearings, I believe, in the year 2018, where thousands of service members were taking photographs and videos of mostly females in the military who did not know they were being photographed and posting it online in this group and making fun of them and saying horrible, violent at times things about these bodies that they were showcasing. Celebrities have been known to have been hacked and people are posting it that way. And in any of these scenarios, we also need to include someone who is actually sexually assaulted, experiencing a rape that is then photographed or videoed, and that is shared widely, and that has happened quite a bit as well. For this reason, a more accurate term for this type of abuse is non-consensual pornography, or NCP. According to a 2017 study by the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, one in eight adults in the United States have been victims to non-consensual pornography. Around one in every 25 internet users in the United States have reported having had these experiences. The issue is even worse for members of the LGBTQI community like Leah. According to a 2016 study, 17% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people have either been victims of NCP or have had someone threaten to share an image of them without their consent. The number of people at risk of non-consensual pornography is much higher. 23% of Americans on Tinder have exchanged nudes with someone that they matched with. Most have never met the recipient for a real date. Young adults in the United States are at an especially high risk. About half of American youth today, aged 18 to 26, have sent nude or semi-nude photos of themselves to others. What's worse is one doesn't even need to share a picture to become a victim of NCP. New technology allows for people to create deep fakes, a video in which a person's face or body has been digitally altered to where they appear to be someone else. 
According to the AI firm Sensity, 96% of deepfakes are pornography and are used to target women. And the number of deepfake porn clips is doubling every six months. Most victims of non-consensual pornography are not even aware that their nude pictures or videos exist online. But some, like Leah, eventually find out. I was in science class and my lab partner, who was my best friend, he pulled out his phone and he showed me a Facebook group where there were countless boys trading pictures of high school girls like they were trading cards. Not every boy in the group would send these pictures or save these pictures, but there were so many boys in the group that would watch it happen. And so they would send the pictures back and forth and he showed me mine. And I instantly recognized them. There were four pictures of me. And I knew in that moment that my life was over because I was instantly exposed. Not only were my nude photos in the hands of every boy who I went to school with, I knew that because these had gotten into the wrong hands, it's very possible that I would get in trouble in school, that my parents would find out, and I would have no future beyond essentially proving correct the rumor that I was a slut and I was a whore and that I was nothing. I had so many folks reach out to me after that on Facebook mainly, who told me that not only had the photos been dispersed in that Facebook group, but they had been dispersed on a website, an international image board, which still exists today, in which photos of children, predominantly high school girls, are non-consensually uploaded and distributed and organized by town, by state, by country, by high school. And so not only did the boys in my school have those pictures in their phones, but boys and girls in schools across the world were able to see, share, and distribute the photos that I had taken in my bathroom in the house that I grew up in. Leah contacted the website and requested the removal of the pictures. The website asked them to prove their identity. Leah had to send a picture of themselves holding a piece of paper with a date on it. It was, you know, incredibly degrading, but I knew that I had to do it, so I did it. The photos did get taken down, and they were instantly re-uploaded. I don't remember how long they were taken down, but I remember that it wasn't long enough to make any difference to me. And I'm not surprised because hundreds of boys had these photos on their phones. They could have been re-uploaded by anyone. And of course, I know that the boy who initially had these pictures in his possession was clearly the one who initially posted them. But I also don't know if there are any boys who I would never even think who posted them again. You know, this is a network of abusers and there will be probably folks whose names I will never know who had my nude underage body in their possession. So it's almost too overwhelming of a concept to really be able to grapple with sometimes, but it happens to millions of internet users and children every day in America and worldwide. This is despite the fact that many countries, in response to the recent surge in this type of abuse, have enacted laws criminalizing non-consensual pornography. 
In England and in Wales, a 2015 law makes it illegal to disclose private sexual photographs and films without the consent of the individuals depicted and with the intent to cause distress. In France, perpetrators of revenge porn may be sanctioned by two years of imprisonment and a 60,000 euro fine. Some countries, however, have not criminalized the offense, including India. In the United States, only two states, South Carolina and Massachusetts, do not have legislation criminalizing non-consensual pornography. But state laws vary in scope, and they often contain loopholes. For example, some prohibit prosecution when the images originated as selfies. Others require a specific motive of the perpetrator. This leaves too many victims without a remedy. Moreover, there is no way to legally compel a tech company to take down images that violate privacy rights. Websites enjoy broad immunity under the Communications Decency Act. The 1996 law was the United States Congress's first notable attempt to regulate pornographic material on the internet. Section 230 of this document shields websites from liability for content created by their users. I spoke to attorney Elisa D'Amico to better understand what legal options victims of non-consensual pornography have. Elisa is the co-founder of the Cyber Civil Rights Legal Project, a global pro bono project aimed at empowering and helping victims of non-consensual pornography. Photos of women are literally traded like baseball cards and you get points or badges if you are able to find these highly coveted photos of one person or another. So, you know, once you open up Pandora's box and once those materials get out, it's really difficult to put them back. For victims, it's very much an uphill battle. So if there's a video that gets out and the victim reaches out to the website and says, I don't consent for this to be here, a lot of times, even the grossest sites will pull it down. But a lot of times what you see are copycat posters. And so let's say a video is posted on one website we're able to get it pulled down. It pops up on a second and a third and a fourth website. We can pull those down and, you know, keeps going and so forth. But a lot of times the people that posted those third, fourth videos are not the initial bad actor. That person is long gone. And from the forensic side of it, that forensic data that could identify a wrongdoer doesn't exist forever. So time is a factor in doing this. And so if someone waits to report or law enforcement sits on it, or they get a civil attorney who doesn't know what they're doing and doesn't know to serve a subpoena right away, that can just cause spoliation because the information doesn't stay around forever. Do you treat all the cases similarly, or is there nuance in how you start to deconstruct and better understand how to get justice for a victim based on the different scenarios? When I speak to a victim, any victim of NCP, the first question is, were these photographs or videos taken while you were a minor? Did you know that the photos were being taken? Did you give consent? How did this person acquire the photos? And of course, the second consent is, did you consent to the distribution? But if an individual was photographed without their knowledge, that is an important factor in how I would treat the case. There are a couple of others, but I think the most important question really is you know, perhaps the most simple, but I ask the victim what they want because 
What I want generally is to see every single perpetrator be taken down. And that's not necessarily what the victim wants. So many victims are just interested in having the material removed from the internet, knowing that this person will not do it again in some form or another. And so there's usually not a desire to go after the person either civilly or criminally. It's just like, get the materials down and make this go away. More often than not, victims aren't interested in pursuing legal action because of the shame they experience. I would say probably most often the victim either took and shared the photo or let the photo be taken with her knowledge. And so there's a guilt there and it's reinforced by parents, right? I've had clients whose parents call them sluts and whores and everything in between by, you know, certainly the law enforcement who oftentimes says, sorry, uh, there's nothing I can do to help you. And by the way, you shouldn't have taken this photo. Next time, don't do that. You know, in schools, the situation often is that the victim is the one who gets kicked out or removed from the class or there's adverse action taken against the victim under the guise of we're doing this to protect you. And what also happens is I think that it's reinforced by a lot of the commentary online that I mean, there's a lot of smack talk and horrible talk about women just generally. And, uh, you know, online harassment isn't limited to just images. There's certainly a lot more there. The way that I've seen it play out is it's often something that prevents victims from coming forward, from even trying to find help. And that, as I mentioned before, can cause a big problem because of the delay because we need to take action as soon as possible. Leah certainly experienced feelings of guilt and shame. Shame made it impossible for me to seek help when I was being victimized by revenge porn. Shame told me that I shouldn't have sent the photos in the first place. Shame told me that I shouldn't have revealed my body to a boy. Shame told me that I was wrong. And because of that, I didn't believe that I deserved help, plain and simple. I believed that I poured the gasoline and he lit the match, but I was just as at fault for pouring the gasoline than I was for starting the fire. I victim-blamed myself. I gaslit myself. I made myself believe that I was the one who started the chain of events that led to my own destruction. Many victims of non-consensual pornography feel similarly to Leah. For this reason, Elisa reminds them that they shouldn't be the ones to blame. I think that the first message needs to be, I mean, really early on, you know, look, everyone needs to be smart about what they're doing with cameras. But if that happens to you, that is absolutely not your fault. And I always think of the two levels of consent, right? There's a huge difference between consenting to share and then consenting to let the materials out to the public. And when I speak to victims, one of the first things I tell them is, this is not your fault. But unfortunately, this feeling of shame can be exacerbated when pursuing legal action. If you're going to prosecute either criminally or civilly, what happens is those victims who feel so badly about what they did and who are told, 
you shouldn't have done this. You know, this is your fault, right? It's like, don't wear a short skirt and you won't get raped. They're forced by nature of the legal process to tell their story over and over and over again to their attorneys who look at all the materials, by the way, as long as it's not CSAM, I look at everything. I have to make sure that I am making proper affirmations to the court and anything that I put my name on needs to be as accurate as possible, right? So I've consumed a lot of that information myself and I can only imagine how that might feel to then have to be deposed. And usually the perpetrator, and it's strategic, but the perpetrator can be in the room while the victim is being deposed. And sometimes it's done as a scare tactic, but having your own photos shown to you by opposing counsel, often a male, and asking you questions about it, like really provocative questions. You know, these videos are like videos of women masturbating. They're not supposed to be out in the public. Another reason why most victims of revenge porn choose not to pursue legal action is because they fear that their perpetrators will harm them further. I told myself, I have to be nice to this person because they now essentially are blackmailing me. And if I ever do anything or say anything to give him further reason to expose me, then I would be putting myself in danger. So there was one moment that I remember distinctly when I went to my locker during lunch and there was no one in the hallway but myself. And walking towards me was the boy who posted my naked pictures. It was just us in the hallway, like a scene from a television show where it zooms in on you, both of your faces. And I knew he was there and he knew I was there. And we both got to the door of the stairs at the same time. And I remember I held the door open for him and let him go through. And that sticks out so strongly in my head because I did a good deed for this person who was actively at that moment destroying my life and traumatizing me because I was so scared of him that I was afraid of doing anything else. And that's something that still causes me a lot of shame to this day. I wish that I had been able to stand up to him and tell him exactly the harm that he was causing me, but I never did. Even to this day, Leah fears their perpetrator coming after them. I'm still deeply scared. I still live in the town that I grew up in, and I would be so terrified if I ever disclosed the name of my perpetrator that he would come and burn my house down. And that's not a metaphor. I am terrified that that would happen. In spite of me being able to walk outside and say, I am no longer thinking actively about my body existing on the internet now, 10 years later, I can still tell you that I'm afraid that the boy who lives in the same town is going to find me and is going to hurt me because I'm speaking out, even though I've never said his name. So there's elements of trauma that stick with you that attach to the bottoms of your feet in ways you don't expect. There are things you will get over. There are things that you will never get over. And there are things that will manifest into your sexual and emotional behavior years later. Some experts even suggest that the psychological effects victims of non-consensual pornography experience may be similar to those experienced by victims of physical sexual abuse. We are seeing not just the same symptoms as post-traumatic stress disorder. Victims who have been sexually assaulted in face-to-face, non-digital world, but more exacerbated. That's Dr. Zaleski again. When I teach about 
trauma, I teach about how much trauma did you experience and for how long. In these cases, the how much is dependent on what was shared and how widely that image was shared. But the how long is more chronic than non-digital face-to-face sexual violence because most survivors can't ensure their content is offline. And because of that, I am seeing more chronic stressed states of these survivors with unique emphasis in certain PTSD symptoms. For example, hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is when you feel afraid, can easily feel scared, and just generally concerned for your safety and well-being. We're seeing in survivors that we're interviewing of technology-facilitated sexual violence that they are hypervigilant every time they get a text. They're worried someone has seen a new picture. Every time they get a Facebook notification, their heart races. They get panicked. They're worried that another image is out there. So there's this sense of being on edge. And I'm talking about survivors where this image was shared years ago. That still is a daily experience. We're watching a sense of a change in how they use technology. Some become sort of like cyber pirates, like experts in privacy and making sure that everything is locked down and others completely shut it down and walk away. We see that in other forms of sexual violence too, where they just avoid technology completely. We also see some compulsive behaviors in a lot of survivors. For instance, they know their image was shared in a chat room. So these survivors will go to this chat room and just sit there for hours every day, just being hypervigilant, making sure that another image wasn't shared. I've met survivors who have rituals. They wake up in the morning, they check YouTube, they check eBay, they check Facebook, they check Instagram, they go about their workday and at lunch, they do that same ritual. And at dinner, they do that same ritual. And sometimes they wake up in the middle of the night and do that same ritual. So it's very much PTSD with an emphasis on and an exacerbation of those symptoms. Like most survivors, Leah never managed to fully remove their pictures from the internet. They also didn't tell their parents about it. Instead, Leah went on to college and tried to put that experience in their past. But one day, they stumbled upon their perpetrator's face online. I was sitting on my dorm room bed in college, and I opened up my school laptop, and I saw the mugshot of the boy who had posted my nude photos online on Facebook. He was on the run from the police for sexually assaulting a minor. And in that moment of seeing his mugshot on my screen, I knew that not confronting him for the abuse that he did to me essentially allowed him to continue to abuse other people. And that's when the accountability came in. He eventually went to jail. My statute of limitations was up. I was never able to hold him legally accountable for the abuse that he did to me. However, I knew that I would share my story and I would share what he did so far and wide that let there be no mistake. He would never be able to do something like that to another person without that person first knowing what had happened to me. Leah started by writing a poem about their experience. We were texting once, 
You told me that I looked like a starry night. Your body was painted by Vincent van Gogh. Please show me a glimpse of your private art show. I said no. You begged for over a year, exhausted under light of my phone screen and under the weight of your raunchy request. I undressed. Leah went on to perform this poem at the White House while advocating to pass laws to criminalize non-consensual pornography. At 19 years old, Leah founded the March Against Revenge Porn. This organization is a nonprofit that fights revenge porn through international organizing, victim support, legislative action, protest marches, and a legal defense fund. I decided that I was going to take to the street and physically put my body on the line and use the image of me that had been taken from me to say, this will never happen to another person again as long as I'm alive. In 2017, they marched for the first time across the Brooklyn Bridge. Since then, they have reached Boston, Pittsburgh, and Orlando. They have also advocated to pass the SHIELD Act, a federal bill that would make it a crime to distribute or threaten to distribute an intimate image without consent. This will help prevent perpetrators of non-consensual pornography from slipping through the cracks of inadequate state laws. Besides changes at the governmental level, we must all start taking this issue seriously. Everybody's got to pick their part and roll forward with it. That's Dr. Zaleski again. This is not unlike what happened in the 60s and 70s when women were trying to legitimize the acts of rape and domestic violence that wasn't seen as legitimate at the time, right? It takes a grassroots effort. It takes people at all levels of society. We need some people working with law enforcement, training, providing resources and education on what digital criminal violence is, what harassment and cyberstalking are. We need policymakers who are ready to get in the ring and really help their colleagues understand what technological forms of sexual violence are. We need some smart advocates and technologically savvy researchers to put together a rape kit for technology-facilitated sexual violence. And we need to provide education to the adolescents and parents on let's acknowledge that sexual curiosity happens and technology is now a form of how sexual curiosity is enacted. How do we teach our kids about that? As well as this idea of consent in technology and how we we need sort of a paradigm shift in society on seeking permission from pictures and getting our heads around that so that when we hear that someone has been assaulted online in this way, we're so clear on what the consensual boundaries are with technology. It's clearly a violation of that, and we can support people who have experienced that as a victim. Leah did not receive the support they needed when experiencing revenge porn. But through their advocacy, Leah has managed to turn adversity into courage. I didn't think that I would live to see age 18, and now I'm 24, and now I see wild, big, beautiful dreams happening for myself and unfolding every day, and opportunities that I never would have had had I killed myself when I was a teenager. That is 
courageous to me. And I will always remember my younger self when I need to channel any form of courage. At the same time, there's something that's called trauma porn. And it's when people essentially romanticize the trauma that you went through and make it integral to your identity. In the words of Carrie Goldberg, I am nobody's victim. I went through hell, but my integral identity is not that of one of being a victim. It is everything that I've done since and everything that I will do in the future. around internet regulations, emerging new technologies, and the increased impacts of social media on society. We really hope that this episode inspired you to do more to protect yourself and others who might be impacted by this crime. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, if you're a parent, talk to your children about digital consent and digital privacy. Encourage your kid's school to educate children on internet privacy. Second, if you're in a relationship, have a conversation with your partner about how you want to be respected and how images will be used. And third, learn more about revenge porn, illegal distribution of non-consensual images, and how to hold perpetrators accountable. We've prepared an educational toolkit on our website to help you deep dive into this issue further. We invite you to host a teach-in for your friends, colleagues, and community. Knowledge is power, and you have the power to inspire real change. If you'd like to hear more empowering stories from Finding Humanity or to learn more about this episode, visit our website at findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Finding Humanity reach new audiences, so we thank you for your support. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. For this episode, I'd like to thank Leah Juliet, Elisa D'Amico, and Dr. Kristen Zaleski. Our co-executive producers are Camille Lorente and Hazami Bermada. Associate producers are Fernanda Oriegas and Tani Jaraprasok. Policy and background research by Carolina Mindica and Tani Jaraprasok. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.